Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. And today is Monday, July 19th, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on, as Luther says, our Christ goggles as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4. The groups were assembled and started work on the wall, which has quite, been quite the journey and it will continue to be quite the journey. But now there's some opposition. This opposition is something that when you first read it, you might think, well, it's just kind of like at a congregational meeting. They don't like the color of the of the walls. They don't like the color of the carpet or something along those lines. Or is this something bigger, um, bigger implications for them and also for us? As we know, this not only will point us to the past, but also point us to Christ and our hope in him. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thy Strong Word is generously underwritten by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we have the joy and honor to have with us Dr. Joel Heck, professor of theology at Concordia University in Austin, Texas, and also the author of 14 books, most recently, From Atheism to Christianity, The Story of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Heck, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Brady. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's good to be here, good to be with you, and good to be on KFUO. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Heck, you've uh, you've spoken around the country, probably around the world, but this is our first time together on Thy Strong Word. So can you introduce yourself and the work at your work as a professor at Concordia University in Texas? Yes, I came to Concordia University of Texas in 1998 as what we now call the provost, so as a chief academic officer in charge of the faculty and the curriculum, largely working in administration, teaching part-time. About nine years later, I returned to the classroom where I am primarily an Old Testament professor, so the book of Nehemiah is kind of up my alley. So that's my primary work, uh, where I did my graduate work especially but I also I'm secondarily responsible for some teaching in the area of New Testament uh, and uh, the life and writings of C.S. Lewis, as the uh, introduction indicated, mm-hmm. and uh, currently have a book just about ready to be released from Winged Lion Press about 21 different friendships that Lewis had. And I have taught some Reformation history at Concordia, too, not because history is my forte, but uh, but because we needed a theologian to be able to teach that, and just about any ordained pastor in the LCMS, in my opinion, could teach a course on the Reformation. So those are my broad teaching areas, some uh, administrative responsibilities that pretty much every faculty member has, including advising students in various majors on courses that they ought to be looking at and taking. And so... Uh, my career in academia started with Concordia University, Wisconsin, where I was for 14 years before coming to Austin. So I, that's a pretty decent summary of where I'm at and where I've been for the last three decades or so, higher education in the LCMS University system. Well, thank you uh, for your for your service in the church and for the wider church, obviously, preparing our church workers and leaders in the church in the name of Jesus. You did miss one major event, though, is that you're, you're famous, at least within my own family, because you're a groomsman in my mom and dad's wedding on June 29th, 1974, correct? 
That is correct. Yes, your <laughs> father and I were seminary roommates. We got along real well together and uh, uh, have had occasion since then to, to reconnect, especially in uh, Minnesota a couple of years ago before the, the pandemic hit. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I have a family tie to the Finneran family, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to recall those memories. I remember chatting with you and and your dad yeah. both at that uh, pastoral conference a few years back. Well, I'll tell you what, it's one of those uh, great, and this is good for our listeners to know, too, is that um, your pastors have, you know, and your church workers, your teachers, everybody has this history, and it's wonderful to see how God brings us together, not only in Christ and baptism, but also in the paths that we go. And I'll say this a little tidbit is, actually, yesterday I drove right by Appleton, Minnesota. That's in western Minnesota which is where my parents were married, drove right by it to a small town in Bellingham, Minnesota, which is just west of there for an ordination and visited with my uncle and had a great time. And it did, I said, you know what? I That, that was the place. My daughter was with me. I said, that's where grandma and grandpa were married. And then I did say this. I gave you a plug. I said, and tomorrow, one of his groomsmen is going to be on the radio with me. So even my daughter knows his connection now. So it's a, re- <laughs> it's a wonderful um, reality that we have, obviously, because of Christ. Well, Pastor, uh, Dr. Dr. Heck, today, uh, thank you for the introduction, and uh, we are excited to be able to dig into Nehemiah. But as we do so, we ask the Lord's blessing. So can you begin us in prayer? I would be happy to. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which has been able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you also for so many other portions of the word, some of which are upfront and well-known to us, others of which are less well-known as in the case of the book of Nehemiah. So we pray that your spirit might enlighten us, might guide us, might uh, fill us as we talk about a significant chapter, an important chapter, like they all are in uh, the revealed Word of God. We pray this in the most excellent name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As we begin our time, reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions for us today, which today would be a great day because, as Dr. Heck said, he is he's, he's a scholar in the Old Testament. He loves Nehemiah. He loves studying, and he loves answering questions because he's been in academia so long. So send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, or give us a call, 1-800-730-2727 or 314-821-0850, 314-821-0850. Well, Dr. Hack, as we get into Nehemiah chapter 4, everything is done within a context and a background. So what do you have for us to introduce um, our time to start us off on the right foot this morning? Perhaps a little bit of geography. Uh, Mm. The province of Judah is one of the provinces of the Persian Empire at this time. So we're in the middle of the 5th century B.C., a little bit of history as well as geography. And it appears... As we look at some of the writings in the the Persian Empire, as well as other documentation, that Judah is surrounded on four sides by four different neighbors, all of them relatively hostile, as it appears that the people of Judah, the Jewish people, are planning to rebuild the wall. Having rebuilt the temple decades earlier, they're now planning to rebuild the wall, which is very important, not only for defensive purposes for the city— capital city of Judah, but also for the ability to worship the Lord as they see fit, as has been revealed to them 
uh, earlier in the Old Testament. So you've got Samaria to the north, and uh, it appears that this character that shows up in this chapter, as well as other parts of Nehemiah, uh, is Sanballat, is the governor of Samaria. And then to the east, we have Tobiah, who seems to be the governor of Ammon, just east of the Jordan River. Then you've got uh, a guy by the name of Geshem, who seems to be have some authority over the Arab territories, south and southwest and even southeast, areas reaching towards uh, southern Palestine and towards Egypt. And then you've got a province that is called Ashdod, named after one of the five Philistine cities. So that's west, southwest of Judah and Jerusalem. So it appears that if you look north, south, east, and west, Judah is surrounded by enemies since, of course, the, the territory that the Jews once inhabited, say, under the time of David, uh, 550 years earlier, has been dramatically diminished. First of all, when uh, the Assyrians conquered the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C., and then the Babylonians came in 586 B.C. and conquered Judah, and then when the Persians replaced Babylonia as the dominant world empire, Judah became a part of one of the provinces of Persia, or Medo-Persia. It was a combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And that leaves the Jewish people living in a relatively small piece of territory just west of the Dead Sea, south of the northern edge of the Dead Sea, and not going all the way to the west to the Mediterranean Sea. So I, I don't know how many square miles that would be, but it was a relatively small uh, piece of land, probably uh, somewhere in the vicinity of one-sixth to one-eighth of the original land that was controlled by David and his son Solomon. That is incredibly helpful. Um... Well, you can tell you're a professor and you're breaking it down exactly where we need to be. It's very helpful for you to to speak about how they're surrounded. And like you said, they're relatively hostile. Like we might think like, well, you know, the Persians were, were pretty nice. But then but then there's a whole bunch of others, the Arabs and the Ashdod, Ash, people from Ashdod and Tobiah speaking in San Balat. And it makes a lot more sense when you read chapter four knowing of the surroundings and the geography and the people involved that this was um well it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like if Iowa decided they wanted to attack Minnesota i mean it would it be that kind it's not quite that simple but kind of that same kind of proximity am i right very close and not only is this true for the 5th century bc that historical perspective but if we fast forward to the 1st century ad we understand a little bit better why the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. The Samaritans from Samaria, of course, named after that territory, originated in the 8th century when those Assyrians, remember I mentioned the Assyrians conquering yeah. the northern tribes? After they took the cream of the crop from the northern tribes to their, their palace area in Syria, Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, northern right. Mesopotamia, they resettled some Gentiles from the surrounding nations into these northern tribes. And so the Samaritans are the offspring of intermarriages between these Jews of the northern tribes and Gentiles. So a Samaritan is part Jew, part Gentile, not highly thought of by 
purebred Jewish people, especially in Jesus' day. And so we have Pharisees and Sadducees not thinking well of the Samaritans. Uh, but it wasn't just that they were part Jew, part Gentile. It's this historical opposition to the Jewish people that surfaces, especially during the time of Nehemiah. We don't, we're not told that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, because I don't think for Nehemiah the issue was Sanballat's territory or his uh, personal history or racial makeup, racial or tribal or ethnic makeup. It, it was the issue of the temple and the ability to defend the temple and build the wall and for the people of Judah have to have the opportunity to serve God according to the scriptures and to worship him in his holy temple. So this opposition it is well remembered down into the first century AD and sets the stage for Jesus and the way in which he dealt with the Samaritans because probably by that time it had become much more racial uh, than it was in Nehemiah's day. And that's helpful, too, because that's a long time period. You know, you, for example, in American history, you have like the Hatfield-McCoy War, you know, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia area. And that was about 30 years. I love reading some of that history. And we might think it was just a short time period, but this is hundreds of years. This is something that built up over time. It wasn't simply... I don't like those people across the tracks that I grew up with. I mean, this is a long-seated, very complex system of, uh, well, like you said, not just racial, not just theological. I mean, there's just there's this animosity and fear and everything mixed into it. That, that, that really helps understand today's text. Uh, other thoughts you have before we start? Yes, uh, just to mention that the book of Nehemiah will be one of the last few books of the Old Testament, and we typically think of Malachi as the last, I mean, it is last in order, but Malachi does his prophetic ministry in the middle of the fifth century, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, First and Second Chronicles actually carry some chronology to about 400, 398 BC, so probably the last books chronologically in the Old Testament, and indeed, uh, Chronicles is the last book in order in the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. So they understood that chronology a little bit, but we're, we're less than a half a century earlier than those last dated events in Second Chronicles. So the reconstruction of the city wall under Nehemiah is about 445 to 444 BC. Uh, Nehemiah has a second visit to Jerusalem, so he functions as governor in Judah, and uh, he has two terms there. He goes back to be cupbearer to the king of Persia after the 444 BC, but then about a decade later, he comes back to Judah and does some initial uh, additional work, both in terms of the safety of the city, as well as religious reforms, including uh, the necessity of backing up Ezra who insisted that the Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles, like a lot of the Samaritans had done, uh, that they divorce their Gentile spouses. And therein he is helping to ensure the ability, uh, maybe I shouldn't talk about the ability, helping to ensure the fulfillment of the Messianic promise that the Messiah would one day 
be born from the tribe of Judah. Because if all mm. the Jews intermarry with Gentiles and the other tribes, then it's going to be difficult or more difficult humanly. Uh, we would think of it as being impossible for the Messiah to be born from the tribe of Judah. But of course that did happen. And so in a certain sense, Nehemiah is really important for the fulfillment of that messianic promise uh, first spoken to Jacob about his through through Jacob about his son Judah in Genesis 49. Hmm. So as we look at this, I think it's a good time for us to start digging into the text and uncovering more of the riches that you have for us, Dr. Heck. Um, and so let us read uh, from verses 1 through 5. And while we do so, a uh, reminder to our listeners, we are reading from the English Standard Version, and we put on our Christ goggles and we move forward. So verses chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now when Sam Ballot, oh sorry, Dr. Heck, yes. You're going to read from the ESV, so while you're reading, I'm going to go grab my copy of the ESV because I have another oh. <laughs> version with me. Okay? All both, right, I'll both be back work, in yes. 30 seconds. <laughs> All right, I'll start reading. Now, when Sam Ballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at, the, at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Actually, I wanted to stop there. Dr. Hack, are you back? Yes, I am. Okay, so I wanted to, I was going to read the first three verses because there's a lot of context. You've touched on it quite a bit, actually, dug deep into it already. But those three, first three verses show that there is, there is a, a trouble brewing. So what's happening here with Sam Ballot and, and the Ammonites and everybody else? They, we have some leaders of the surrounding provinces fearing the growing strength of Judah. They probably know a little bit of Israel's history and know how powerful they were under David and Solomon and some subsequent kings to that. And so they don't want to see the balance of power shift from them to others. Of course, that's very true today in the political realms and in our communities. So they, first of all, get angry. And secondly, they try to use ridicule in order to sabotage Nehemiah's efforts to get that wall rebuilt. And, and they exaggerate in some of their ridicule. The, the statement by Tobiah, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Uh, not quite true. It certainly wasn't as strong as the wall that was originally built in the time of Solomon. But uh, Kathleen Kenyon, an archaeologist, did some work in Jerusalem and discovered the wall of Nehemiah and found that it was nine feet thick. So I don't think wow. any fox is going to be able to do that. <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe Tobias is, is is hoping that they're not going to check out his uh, the data, that they're going to believe what he has to offer. Maybe they'll be discouraged by his uh, exaggeration. And there's plenty of that, the exaggeration, the ridicule. It's not going to be as good as it once was, and that's very true. But it's going to be 
plenty strong enough to prevent the surrounding provinces from attacking Jerusalem successfully. Well, and this goes into just our natural tendency as human beings is to slander people when we feel threatened. Um, and I just found that interesting that that we can look at them and go, well, how dare they do that? But how how quick are we to do similar actions as Christian people when we feel threatened, whatever the threat might be? It doesn't have to be a wall that's going to threaten our political authority, but just a wall that we will not wall, but a, criticisms that we'll have of other people. Any thoughts on how that how that relates to today for us as Christians? Well, just how the, the flip side of that is so important. I mean, Barnabas's name meant son of encouragement, and he was very clearly an encourager. He was the one that took John Mark on the subsequent missionary journey after Paul didn't want him on his team anymore. The people around us that we know to be encouragers, they always have a positive mood, uh, a positive word to say. Uh, We love people like that. And maybe that's a lesson for us to to be an encourager ourselves. Not that we ignore negative things that are going on or pretend that there's nothing wrong that we need to fix, but to encourage in our children, our grandchildren, our family, our friends, our congregations, uh, positive things that we see are going to, it's going to result in more of the same. And, and one of the, one of the joys, and I'll share this with you, Dr. Hack, when we spoke at the pastor's conference in Minnesota, like I've heard of you for years, like, oh yeah, my old roommate was a professor, and I was like, okay, that's that's a bunch of baloney. You know, my, my dad would say, oh, yeah, because, you know, dad doesn't know Hebrew at all, and I don't know it very well either. But anyways, but one of the statements you made to me, which was very encouraging to me, and I wanted to share this on air, was you just mentioned uh, paying attention to me and my sister and praying for us all these years, which was a great encouragement to me and just a reminder for everybody um, to encourage each other in that way, to lift each other up in prayer, not in, well, you know, a fox could tear down this or anybody could do their job, but to encourage each other also in prayer. So I wanted to share that with you and give you thanks. Uh, thanks to the Lord for your encouragement for our family as well. But right now, you're very welcome. What, yeah, let's continue on um, verses four through six before our break. Four through six. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So as we look at these words today, um, he does what he's been doing, really he does throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. He ran, not randomly, he very intentionally adds prayer in the midst of everything he does. And Nehemiah prays again. What is his prayer that he has this morning? Or in, the, in these verses, excuse me. The prayer is, is a prayer that God might frustrate the opposition of the, the Samaritans and the Ammonites and the Arabs and, and the Ashdodites who are wanting to frustrate and, and sabotage Nehemiah's work. It's not really, he's not taking it personally, but this is God's work. God has sent him to do the work of building the wall. The king of Persia has authorized it. And so he wants God to frustrate their attempts to frustrate his work, which is really God's work. I love that statement at the end of the prayer. So he built the wall. Like that, <laughs> that settles it. It's been a 
pray and then leave it in God's hands to make sure that the opposition is not successful. And as we get to the end of the chapter and read on in subsequent chapters, we find out that's exactly what happened. The, the battle that was threatened never did take place. And this is, you know, and this is why uh, one of those riches in Nehemiah that I did not think I would find was Nehemiah, a man of prayer. And, and partly because I hadn't read the book as well as I should have. And, and it's not in the lectionary very often, not a book you kind of fall onto, not something that many people ask for for Bible study on Sunday mornings is that continuous prayer. Why is prayer interceded in our daily lives in, in, in the most the biggest moments, the smallest moments, all moments, why is prayer so important as Nehemiah shows us here this morning? I got to think of lots of reasons to especially come to mind. Number one, prayer is an admission of my own weakness and need for help from the outside. So it humbles myself. We, Peter quotes uh, the book of Proverbs when he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So partly because of what prayer does to us and for us, and partly because prayer taps into the greatest power in the universe, and that is our omnipotent God, who has certainly the power, the capability of accomplishing whatever we want in the blink of an eye, or sometimes, as in this case with Nehemiah, accomplishing his will through his people, through Nehemiah and all the people of the city. I mean, he really gets everybody in Jerusalem involved, as we see reading later on into the chapter. This is a team project, not just a Nehemiah project. And so, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hack, I think I want to touch on this on the other side of the break. You have spoken about how Nehemiah is, is considered a case study of leadership. And I want to get to that on the other side of our break. But right now, we need to take that break. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 4 with Dr. Joel Hack, and we'll be right back. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. The USA is the third largest mission field in the world, and church planning is one of the most effective means of making new disciples, new missions to new people in new places. Get ready to plow the fields. Check out the Mission Field USA podcast produced by the LCMS Office of National Mission. You can find it at kfuo.org or anywhere you get your podcasts.
Our listeners and supporters are talking about Worldwide KFUO. One of my real aspirations is to set my mind on things above where Christ is. That's hard in that world of distraction. KFUO is really helping me to fix my mind on things above, to meditate on the things of Christ. You've been very helpful to me, and I appreciate it. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Worldwide KFUO. And welcome back. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 4. We are digging deep this morning, and it is a lot of fun because as we look at Nehemiah, we're able to see much of the context and the history and Samaria and why was the Good Samaritan parable so important? Well, we get a feel for that in Nehemiah as we understand the context and the background and the history. And also we see our Lord Jesus as he works. We see the importance of prayer. But also Nehemiah is one of those that's considered within the church to be kind of a, a case study in leadership. As Christian people, we believe that Jesus is our leader. Our Lord is our leader. This is clearly something we learn in First Second Kings. But also we see it in light of that, knowing our Lord is, is the, the leader. He's the one who has saved us. He's the one who guides us. He's the one who carries us. We see leadership, quote, I don't want to say principles, maybe is the right word, but leadership principles from Nehemiah as they rebuild the wall. Dr. Dr. Hack, you have a few uh, a few thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think I do. I'm relying on the insights of others because uh, I originally never thought of Nehemiah as a study of leadership, but leadership is primarily having a vision for where you want to be, where you want to go, and for Nehemiah, it was the rebuilding of the wall, and then having sufficient organizational skills as well as motivational skills to get everybody on the team heading towards that vision. It also takes a certain amount of humility, and we, took, we talked about that when we discussed prayer before the break. So he had to understand what the goal was, anticipate some of the problems that he would face in the process of heading towards that goal, be motivational, be rather selfless in the process, because this is really about God and about the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding that wall, it's not about him. So he doesn't, he doesn't have this huge ego that often gets in the way of effective leaders. And then he relentlessly moves toward that goal and is capable because he has a strong vision of where he wants to be. And, and God gave him that vision, of course. It wasn't something he dreamed up. But he can move toward that goal and not allow various problems like the ridicule and opposition of his, the neighbors of Judah to derail the entire project. And that's an interesting um the thought process of Nehemiah, but you definitely see it through. And as you said, there's there's a servant leadership. I, we, we, that's how we probably define it, a servant leadership mentality for Nehemiah that's centered in prayer, but also understanding the realities that surrounded him. Because you have Ezra, which you hear about later, obviously before this as well, that really is that theological voice as far as making sure things are according to the book of the law, um, everything. But Nehemiah definitely takes that role from a more government perspective or um, uh, well, governor perspective as well. So any any thoughts on that distinction in Nehemiah? Yes, I like to describe Ezra and Nehemiah knew each other, and they were there in Judah at the same time. Ezra, Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah 
was a layman. So you've got sort of church and state. You've got the theological perspective that Ezra especially brings, but Nehemiah also brings it as a layman and is an encouraging example for those who are lay people and not clergy. We need strong lay leaders in the church just as much as we we need strong clergy leaders, good pastors who know the word and live the word and teach the word. So they were working side by side, and I suspect if we had a chance to listen in on some of the conversations, we would be greatly encouraged by the respect Ezra had for Nehemiah and vice versa. They were a team in a certain sense, even though the, the team aspect of their relationship isn't spelled out specifically in, in those two books. Well, very good. Well, let's keep moving on. Uh, verses 7 through 9. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So there, there's not a lot of information there, but there's you know some good reminders in these verses as well. What, what are your thoughts there? Yes, it reminds me of something that one of our famous politicians once said, trust but verify. So we, we, we mm. trust God to guide us, but we also do the work that we need to do. Also echoes the famous quotation from the missionary William Carey, who went to India and started the era of modern missionary, the era of the modern missionary movement. He said, work as if everything depended on you and pray as if everything depended on God. So the fact that we're praying doesn't mean that we just sort of sit back and wait for God to do the work. He, he so often works through us. Uh, that's the whole area of sanctification in our lives. So we need to step up and do the things that God has gifted us to do. But it also uh, reminds me of the monks of the Middle Ages who had a motto, pray and work, ora et labora in Latin. And that's what they did. We prayed to our God, verse 9, and set a guard. So they did both. Uh, Not only set a guard, but also worked while those guards were watching up to make sure that they were ready if an attack came against them from the Ammonites or the Samaritans and others. One of the great parts of, of these verses as well is you go from kind of a mocking that they do in the first three verses, like, ah, that wall is worthless. But then they notice that it's kind of, it's not a bad wall. It seems like it's a pretty good wall, and they seem to be working together as a team. Like you said, they have good leadership. Um, they clearly fear the Lord. So now they not only wanted to ridicule them, but they wanted to go and fight. And so it really shows that this is escalating in a way that they realize that they, they needed to do more than, I don't want to say, I, I never want to say it this way, but just pray. But now they're realizing that they need to pray and work, as you said so well, that you look at William Carey and, and how he speaks and, and so forth. So there, it's an escalating moment here, which requires us to have discernment and wisdom on what to do next. Any, any last thoughts on these first nine verses? Uh, I think you said it well. <laughs> it's really interesting how 
the the opposition that encircles them. We don't quite get that perspective from Nehemiah. He's he's just telling us like he sees it. This is a autobiographical. This is Nehemiah himself saying these words. Mm. Other parts of the book are in the third person and seem uh, like maybe somebody else wrote them. But here he uses the personal pronouns I and we and ours and us and my and all that. And so he's just putting the pen to paper and writing down what he sees. And he sees all this opposition, but he also sees the goal. He sees uh, the God of Israel encouraging and inspiring, and they're heading in the direction of accomplishing the task of rebuilding the wall. We do receive one one question, a comment and a question from Carl. He said, uh, thank you, Dr. Heck. I have a better understanding of how Samaria and Judah came to be as we look at the first century AD. And he asks, how did Galilee come about? Any thoughts on that? Uh, how did Galilee come about? Uh, I guess he's talking about in terms of a geographical region. I mean, right. Galilee was originally part of the land of Israel. The northern tribes were located around there, Asher, Zebulun, Issachar, uh, and centered in the Sea of Galilee, not part of the land of Judah at this point. And later on, uh, many Jewish people settled there, partly because the rainfall was much more generous there in the south, Jerusalem, and, and south of Jerusalem was much more barren. And so the territory of Galilee being the historical uh, part of the land of Israel. Many Jews did settle there where farming and raising uh, vineyards was a lot easier to do, especially with the freshwater lake of the Sea of Galilee right there. So how it came to be, I don't, I'm not sure what is meant by the, the, the question because I suppose I could have answered somewhat flippantly, well, God made it that way, but uh, <laughs> I know he's asking something about how that fits into the history of the land and ends up being a prominent mm, uh, mm -hmm. piece of land at the time of Jesus. We do have that fairly famous prophecy, prophecy in the ninth chapter of Isaiah that is described in, um, in the Gospels as being fulfilled by the Galilean ministry of Jesus. So, you know, the child is born, son is given, prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, that chapter begins with a reference to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and then talks about people walking in darkness are seeing a great light, and we, we move into this messianic section. But it starts in the first couple of verses, and it doesn't just begin in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah. So that was predicted by the prophet Isaiah to be significant for the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So as you look at this, I think it's good for us to be able to continue to move forward because there the, the work continues, but it doesn't it doesn't happen with blind faith, if you will, but it continues with preparation as a, as a servant leader that Nehemiah is, and also as the people continue their work. So let's continue verses 10 through 14. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. Failing, excuse me. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, 
you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of this space, behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. So Nehemiah continues his servant leadership here. Uh, Dr. Hack, what, what ways does he lead? By responding to some of the internal discord that appears in the nation, this phrase uh, in, in verse 12, the Jews who live near them, that is the Jews that were on the fringes of the province of Judah, were being influenced by the surrounding neighbors, the Samaritans and Ammonites and the like. And so they brought discouraging words to Jerusalem. The phrase uh, at the end of verse 12, you must return to us, is a difficult phrase in the Hebrew, translated differently in the NIV, for instance, where the NIV translates it, they told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So whatever the words mean, they are an indication of uh, resistance or discouragement, and it's happening in this case from the Jewish people themselves. And Nehemiah deals with that by inviting them not to be afraid the last verse of this section, and remember the Lord and the, the quality and nature of our God who is great and awesome and who will fight for us. And so as we see this, there's, there's kind of a, um, a, you know, the role of the Jewish family. It's like, it's not just the certain people that are, are fighting or to remember and, and fight for other, they're not just fighting for themselves, but they're fighting for their family, you know, the sons, the daughters, wives, and your homes. Any insight on how that relates to the culture at that time? The Jews then, as now, were very social, very family-oriented. If you're going to get this job done, uh, you can't just count on one or two people in a given family, and a family would have been probably much larger than the typical American family today. But you've got to involve the whole family, and everyone has a role. So that's why he talks about uh, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is not just a military thing or a, con a construction project, but this is something that's going to improve the quality of life of your entire family, as well as uh, your ability to gather for worship and leave worship to serve. Very good. Any other thoughts on those uh, four verses, ten, or five verses, 10 through 14? It's just one thing, one unexpected obstacle that ar arrived. In verse 10, he talks about the people saying there is too much rubble. Mm. It's one thing to inspire the building of a wall, but when in order to build the wall, you've got to clear away some of the rubble that's there in the ruins because of what the Babylonians did to the wall 130 years ago. Uh, this is this is making the project that much more difficult, and yet he wasn't about to allow this obstacle to derail the entire construction project. Well, and I find it interesting 
that it, it relates very much so to to our world too that you're doing a project I mean because you've talked to anybody who's um, had a, a building project in their congregations or when you're maybe you're building your own home or you're wanting to do a project on your own home or any kind of group dynamics that are there that you're always going to have some people that say this is just too much we can't do it now the option is to just not do it which is not an option for most times um, because it needs to be done, and here it clearly needs to be done. So I've, I've found I have found Nehemiah to be very realistic for all of us. That when groups get together, there's always going to be somebody that's going to be like, "Well, this is not worth the time." Of course, they don't have a secondary option for this. Um, there's people who are saying this, or there's people saying this, or whatever it might be. And then Nehemiah kind of gathers the crowd, addresses those concerns. But ultimately, doesn't like say, okay, well, that person's complaining. We're not going to do anything until people stop complaining. No, he knows he knows what needs to be done. He knows who this is for, and he moves forward, obviously, by the Lord's strength. Any, I find it very earthy. Any thoughts on uh, very realistic book? Any thoughts? Takes me back to the creation account where God put Adam in the garden to take care of the garden. They put Eve in the garden to take care of Adam. That men have been since that time largely goal-oriented, work-oriented, and women have been more relationship-oriented than men. And it's Mm -hmm. not uh, one or the other, but we need the task orientation in order to get the job done, but we need to understand relationship and the importance of the family and the process. And so that's what both men and women brought to this project in Nehemiah's time. We continue verses 15 through 20, 15 through 20. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So here we get some unique details about, okay, this is the plan now. You know, we're, we're praying, we're doing this, do not be afraid. And here's how they make it happen. What are your thoughts on, on this very intricate plan with a wonderful ending about our Lord? Yes, so the people of Judah probably did not have a standing army at this time. Uh, we know from historical records that the Samaritans did, so that puts Judah at a significant disadvantage. On the other hand, Jerusalem, especially the original city of David, was built on a hill. So even though they had only a partial wall at this time, if there was an attack, uh, they'd be on the higher ground, which would give them an advantage. The other thing that they have to do is to be well-organized. And if Nehemiah was anything, he was an administrator, a well-organized individual. And uh, like we said earlier, he involves everyone. And he seems to have three different groups of people. He's, he's got some people that have weaponry and are scanning the horizon for any possible opposition. We've got some people 
who are doing the building and then some people who are doing some work carrying things, stones and tools and the like in one hand and with a weapon in the other hand. So they are at the ready. They've got these three different groups, one group entirely working, one group entirely watching and ready to fight if need be, and then one group that's doing both simultaneously. And even the ones that are working on the wall exclusively have their swords strapped to their side so that they can drop what they're doing and fight if need be. Seems to be a, about as good a plan as you can possibly have. Reminds me a little bit of the Minutemen during the days of the Revolutionary War in America's early history, uh, where farmers could be called out and be ready to fight. And even though they weren't trained for battle like the, the British military were, uh, they were still relatively effective because they could respond uh, at the drop of a hat. And you've got that same readiness apparent here in these verses that you just read. Now, I, I, I got to be careful when I say this next part, but <laughs> I think there is there's a reality for us as we, as the baptized, continue to, as the hymn says, fight the good fight and fight the good fight of faith. And I'm trying, not trying to make a one-to-one because this is an obvious case that this is not a prescription <laughs> um, for us as a church that we have to have people with weapons, we have to have this and have to have that. But I think there is something to be said about how, like you said, is that that people have to be ready, have to be ready to fight the good fight of faith, to be with the Word of God as their guide, um, with the Lord fighting for them. Um, I think there's 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 a lot of applicability for us, the church, for our own Christian walk as we go through each day as sinful people, knowing that we're forgiven in Christ. And those words, God will fight for us, um, I think is a good bad cry for us. Any thoughts on how that relates to us today? Reminds me of Paul's words to the Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In a certain sense, we are in battle every day, even though we often don't realize it or don't think about it. We may not be involved in some sort of literal fisticuffs or uh, physical struggle, but there is an evil one that is trying his best to bring us down, to discourage us in whatever tasks are in front of us. And we wrestle against principality and, and powers. We, we wrestle against the forces of evil. And we need to recognize that that's the enemy, not other people. Even those that oppose us, uh, whether they are opposing something going on in the Christian church or opposing us individually, they aren't really the enemy. And so that's one of the reasons why Jesus could encourage us to pray for our enemies because they're simply people who have been deceived by the great deceiver and are on the, the wrong side of the kingdom of God, but they are potential members of the kingdom of God. And, and if we respond to them in a, a way that they don't expect, you know, they expect us to retaliate, but we respond by loving them, by praying for them, by uh, helping them when they're trying to hinder us, they're going to be shocked and wonder what's going on there and perhaps even ask us why we do what we do. And we can say it. it's because I've got a God who loved me so much that he gave his son to die for me and promises me a place with him in eternity. And he makes that same promise to our opponents uh, as well. Hmm. 
So let's continue to finish. Uh, we have about six minutes left, uh, Dr. Heck. And so let's finish our verses and we can wrap it up on what this means for them and for us. 21 through 23. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So it, it, it ends with the reality. They keep working. They're still going, but there's always a weapon in their hand. What is Nehemiah telling us? Yes, I suppose, uh, like you said earlier, always be prepared. And they certainly were that. There have been a few occasions where I slept in my clothes, especially in a camping situation. But Mm. uh, that wasn't all that unusual, I imagine, for them. They they had to be ready to fight at the drop of a hat. And so they were. That's That's how the chapter ends. And I recognize that Books weren't divided into chapters until about 1200 A.D. So we've, this is an artificial distinction, but this is probably a very good place where the preceding material is divided from the following material into chapter, chapters 4 and 5. So they were ready. They were ready to fight if need be, but they were also ready to continue the work at dawn. It says... Um, Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I read in a commentary that that was referring to a specific time of the day. We don't know what that time was, but that Mm. phrase, till the stars came out, probably at dusk. You know, we sometimes see stars in the sky before it gets entirely dark, and sometimes it's it's actually a planet rather than a star. But we're probably talking about dawn to dusk there in that uh, 21st verse. So, Dr. Heck, we have about two minutes left. How would you summarize this chapter and its implications that point us to Christ today? We need to know the task that God has given us uh, day by day. Uh, not only the, the, the day's activities, but also have the long-range picture, and Nehemiah had both. He was very practical and organized for the day-to-day tasks, but he also had to rally the people in order to aim for that long-term goal of getting the wall rebuilt at a time when there were very few people, very few people in the city of Jerusalem, very few people in Judah. I don't know how it compared to the surrounding population uh, but one uh, scholar estimates the total population of Judah around 12 to 15,000, and the population of Jerusalem maybe 1,500 compared to um, about a million people today. So this was these were very small potatoes, and it would have been easy to get discouraged, especially when they ran into some additional problems. But that's part of daily life is to face discouragement. And we need to do what the psalmist said in Psalm 121, lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence our help comes. And uh, what the writer of the Hebrews said in the 12th chapter, keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And for about 30 seconds here, uh, Dr. Heck, you said something about this is a very personal chapter. Can you explain that to us? About 30 seconds. 
It's very autobiographical, the use of the first person singular, the pronouns, the adjectives. Uh, he's giving us eyewitness history of what was ha happening in those days, the very type of history that was most highly valued at this time in Israel's history and on into the New Testament. Those that had been through these experiences were the ones that were most well-qualified to write about them. Hence, we can trust, I believe we can trust the reliability and historicity of this account from the pen of Nehemiah. Dr. Joel Heck, professor of theology at Concordia University in Austin, Texas, given us God's strong word from Nehemiah chapter 4. Dr. Heck, thank you for being our guest. It was a pleasure. Saints of our Lord, Nehemiah was a leader, but not a leader in the sense of on his own, but he was a servant leader. And as Christians, we realize that what we first do is point people to trust in the Lord. We trust in the Lord in prayer, and we fight the good fight because we know that our Lord not only fought for them, but he fights for us because Christ is your strength and Christ your right. This is very personal, and it is for you from our Lord Jesus. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. <laughs>